Right, welcome back to the podcast, Stephen Sully Study. We're here in Mayfair at Woodbury House Art Gallery, and I've got a really, really interesting guy in front of me, Matt Fides. Thank you very much for your time. I'm looking forward to having this chat. We finally made it happen. We have. May discussions, failed plans, and we've made it happen. Yeah, we have. We have. We have. First and foremost, um, before we talk about you, your background, your achievements, what you're up to now, etc., Walking through our Mayfair Gallery for the first time, what was your thoughts? Well, you've got an impressive thing going on here. You're in a prime spot of London, and it's great. I mean, I can't tell you I know much about art. That's not my thing. But it's impressive. It's very clean. It's lovely. And yeah, what a spot. Yeah, I mean, for anywhere for a podcast studio as well, underneath it, it's very impressive. Yeah. You're right in central London, aren't you? Minutes from Buckingham Palace and everything. Yeah, you wanted something here, Stephen. Well, some of the names that we mentioned, including some mutual friends who, who yeah. have very, very good podcasts, they've all asked me a few times about hiring the space for the for, for the podcast studio. So uh, it's definitely in high demand, mate. Yeah, I can see why. Because it's hard getting good locations in London. Mm. It's very difficult, especially at the right price, because they've gone up, especially since well, lockdown and everything. It's just gone mm. crazy now. So mm. Mm. I'll be tapping you up at some point to use that room. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. Um I really see this podcast talking about three different areas. Uh, first and foremost, your background as a as a child, and then also working your way up as a young entrepreneur and becoming a very successful multimillionaire and uh, property investor. Then, of course, talking about your affiliation to the high-profile world, including Mr. Michael Jackson, and then also your time on TV, etc. Some of the the media stuff that you do. Um, sure. So, is it true that when you were around about seven years of age that you were sadly bullied, Matt? I wouldn't say sadly bullied because the best thing that ever happened to me. So, yeah, it all started off with me being dragged to school by my mum, bless her. Me trying to make up stories to try and make her believe I wasn't feeling very well because I had this bully at school who was a nightmare. And, and Stephen, you know, back when you're five to seven years old, getting kicked under the table, stealing your milk, calling your names, and it has a big effect on you. It's the start of life. I didn't want to go to school. And he is probably the most significant person in my life. If it wasn't for being bullied, and your viewers, listeners might be thinking this is strange, I met him on national TV for the first time, I think in 32 years. He reached out to me and he said, Matt, I'm really sorry for how I treated you at school, in infant school. And I said, what are you talking about? Look what you've done. You've changed thousands of people's life. If it, I wouldn't have met Michael Jackson, done anything. Wouldn't have been anybody. Who knows what would have been? Maybe a personal trainer or a lifeguard still? Don't know. So look what you've done. And um, yeah, we met We met on TV on the big Philip Schofield at the time and Holly on this morning. We're running a Be Kind campaign. And just by, we, just by chance, they wanted... They wanted this story. They've been trying to find my bully for years, Stephen, because that was the key, right? The guy, the significant person who was the antagonist for, for, for me starting martial arts, to defend myself against him, triggered this whole hunger for being bad at school, not being able to write properly, teachers not ignoring me because I'm underconfident. They thought I was right-handed, and in fact, I was left-handed, so my handwriting, I can't write properly, only I can understand my own, it's like a scribble and left school with no qualifications. But if it weren't for that hunger of that bully, I would never have looked and searched for how can I make my passion into my profession, make this business work. So when he came out on this morning on ITV, which is a big TV station in the UK, the, uh, Philip was worried. Philip Schofield was concerned because I had 
white jeans on, which kind of resembled white martial arts trousers. He knows I like, I know how to stir the media up. Like Michael Jackson, was, which we'll get on today, was my biggest mentor in that. So he thought, Matt Fidesz, if he kicks this guy in the head on live this morning TV, it will be worldwide news. So they introduced me and stuff at first. And Philip said to me, you're not going to punch him and kick him in the ass. I said, trust Trust me, Phil, I'm not. I'll do something, but it's not what you're thinking. He's like, oh, dear. He went live. He introed me. Backstory, how I became a multimillionaire, be bullied. And I'm going to meet my bully first time on TV, live on air. We're in separate green rooms, the rooms where you wait. So the producers kept us apart. They really wanted that interaction after meeting for 32 years. So a guy who's gone on to make millions, and then he's called Anthony. Anthony Reap, who was there. And they brought, brought Anthony on. The first thing I did is stood up and I shook his hand. So thanks for what you've done. Thanks for what you've done in front of millions of viewers. And yeah, the great thing about that, and it's a good inspiration for everyone, we went back on a show a year later and uh, I helped him lose weight. He trained with me. He's now my anti-bully ambassador for the MF organization, my, my companies. He won an award recently for MF Inspired. He inspired the biggest martial arts brand in the world. If it wasn't for him, none of this happened. So sadly, bullied at school, it was the greatest gift to, for me to be used the right way. That was everything, being bullied at school. Mm. I wouldn't change it. I guess where I was going with that is uh, it's ironic, right? Because not only have you become wildly successful and you've had a really, really great life thus far and very, very successful career, but looking at what you do, you're a, you're a trained martial artist yeah. and, and someone that can fight and look after yourself. And I guess without that bully, there is no catalyst to become this, this individual that, that you are today. Yeah, so li literally, Stephen, the kid next to me at school, on the school desk, was doing a martial art. And he said, Anthony's going to beat you up at some stage. Come to this martial art lesson. The first one I went to is, is a martial art style called Jiu-Jitsu. And I wasn't very good at it. I didn't like being thrown and all this type of stuff. But in the room next door, there was one called Taekwondo. And I'm six foot four. Also, I was six foot four when I was like seven or eight. But I got these long legs and I was very good at doing the kicks. I could already do the splits. But I come from a very athletically gifted. I do believe in a lot of genetics that was involved if you want to be professional at what you do. And my grandfather on my mum's side, my mum's dad, he was seven times Irish weightlifting champion. He was picked for the Rome Olympics in 1960. I didn't inherit his bodybuilding muscle. He used to train with Arnold Schwarzenegger when Arnold lived in London. I didn't, I didn't inherit his, um, his muscle building, but I, he trained me. And, and from 12 years old up, he taught me how to build muscle, how to get strong. And he took me under his wing. And what a mentor to have, you know, for my own grandfather. So I had him and my martial arts instructor really thought, this, this kid's going to go somewhere. You know, I got the ability, I was winning all the competitions. I was training every day. I was a martial arts fanatic, watching Jean-Claude Van Damme. And back then, the kids now have TVs in their rooms and, and they got everything available, Netflix. I used to get up early at four in the morning to watch the latest Jean-Claude Van Damme film because we had one TV in the house, you know, for the whole family, me and my three brothers. Or Bruce Lee. My parents didn't want me watching that. And they would say, no, you're not going to make any money out of kicking legalized violence, is what my dad used to call it. They were so against it. But yeah, I am just, I am literally just a martial artist. That is what I am. That is my passion. I love it. That's all I am. I just learn how to give the public what they want. I took martial arts from 2,000 years old and brought it to the modern modern day or what it needs to be now, where they need to learn more than just kicking and punching. I teach everything the school system don't teach 
my organization teaches for martial arts. You know what? I um I heard a quote. It was either on a podcast or maybe written down in a news article that I think you said, and I don't know if I'm saying it verbatim, but I'm sort of paraphrasing it. Teaching martial arts to the younger people out there or to your clients is actually just the byproduct. It's more the lifestyle that you teach and they actually pick up martial arts along the way. How true is that? It's very true. So the martial arts is just the hook or dance schools that I have. It's just the hook. The The life skills around it is what what's important. So let me, let me give you an example. So in martial arts, it's very well known. You get to black belt, you're at a good standard. And I will never compromise standards of money. That's why I've been around nearly three decades leading this martial arts industry. However, why, why martial arts does so well compared to other fitness-based or learning um, systems out there is all about the color bouts. So if I asked you, Stephen, to go and buy 50 properties and I want you to do it in a year, you'll be overwhelmed. You'll think, wow, that's... And you'll probably burn out after two or three months. Whereas if I said to you, I want you to buy so many over 10 years to achieve that goal, you'll think, that's okay, I can do that, I can get mentored. So the key about martial arts is you learn the big goals black belt. And then along the way, you've got the color bouts and you've broken the big goal into smaller chunks. So once you've learned that, you've got that in your blueprint in your mind, you can apply that to life. That you've got to take your big goal in life and break it into smaller chunks. So the martial arts gave me that you don't give up, perseverance, you're respectful to everyone, you're disciplined, you stay humble, you don't get into fights, you avoid how to, you avoid the, the situation in the first place. You call people sir, ma'am, because that's what it's about. And yes, so, you know, very polite martial arts, all about respecting people, bowing to them. So yeah, the whole ethos of it is about that. So, so for me, yeah, that's very true. And um, parents don't bring, well, 10% of them do, but, and we do have an area for that. Parents don't rush and bring their children to my classes because they want their kids to be the next Bruce Lee. They bring them because they want them to be more disciplined, get away from the iPad, get off Netflix, you know, get off the screen time, be respectful to them, tidy their bedroom up, um, learn fire safety, water safety. No one else teaches this stuff. Stranger danger, but not in the old ways how we and you would have been taught. Online strangers danger. Dangers of online platforms like TikTok. Give them positive role models via my instructors rather than the latest TikTok influence, influencer. And that's why we've, over the almost three decades, we've evolved and we've kept up with modern times. Mm. I get the, the bully and trying to prove that you could overcome this bully by learning martial arts, learning to defend yourself and, and essentially just becoming a harder type of, type of young, young man. Yeah. But there's a big difference between becoming a really, really good martial artist or someone's good at boxing or jiu-jitsu or judo or whatever to a business person, right? Yeah. So who, how did you pick that up? You know, open up your first business dojo, I'm not too sure what you call it, and then yeah, scaling yeah. it up and becoming someone that is going to kind of monopolize what you do today. Yeah. So I know the bully gets a lot of blame for everything, but there was lots of motivating factors. First of all, when your whole family's telling you you can't do it, you're not going to make any money from kicking your legs in the air. My grandfather comes from a very, my other one, from my um, dad's side, he comes from an industrial background. He fought in World War II. So he comes from the Brunel, where right back to his like great-great-grandfather, everyone's got a job at Brunel Railway as an engineer. So he was about to get a trade, man, become an electrician, a plumber. And I remember he took me in this shed and he gave me a big lecture saying, what are you doing kicking your legs about, 
shouting all this, you know, Bruce Lee sounding noise as far as he was concerned. You need to get a trade. You can't make any money out of doing this. He took his words back a couple of years later when I took him out in my Ferrari, but he became my biggest fan. So everyone was against me. My mum is one of 14 children. They've all gone inc incredible. My mum was a solicitor. She was a lawyer, attorney, wherever you're watching this from. And they've all amazingly intelligent people, academically gone to university, got degrees. That's the way my grandfather brought them up. So on one side, I had get a trade. On the other side, become a vet. I loved animals. That's what I wanted to do. It was never going to happen. That's not how I'm wired up. I, I, I would sit in classes and think, um, one example I use a lot is in my mathematics class. It's quite a significant part of my, my life to making this happen, my business plan. One of the GCSE questions, which is your leave secondary school, high school qualification, one of the mock questions was how many different ways can you put 50 pence into a phone box? So I'm not old, that old, right? I'm 44. And this is how things have moved on. They're like museum pieces now, aren't they? The red phone boxes. How many different ways can you put 50p in the phone box? Now, this actually ended up in the right GCSE paper. It was a real question. So is it two 20ps and a 10 or five 10ps? I just thought to myself, looked around at all the other kids in class again, this is madness. I just want to teach martial arts for a living. No one's ever done that before. So I went to the back of my exercise book. They probably use iPads nowadays. And I wrote down goals. We've still got that exercise book to these days, my mathematics exercise. But I put down something ridiculous. Like I wanted to have do splits on the chairs like Jean-Claude Van Damme. I wanted to be the most well-known martial arts instructor in the world. I wanted to be the millionaire by the time I was 20. My brother was, was he loved Ferraris and he actually he could draw Ferraris. He, could, he studied car design and he actually went to, I think he went to work temporarily as an apprentice in Italy for Ferrari. He, he could draw them incredibly. Very, very academic guy, very smart, complete opposite to me. And so one of my goals was I, I saw, I grew up with my brother Nathan having all these pictures of Ferraris on his wall, 355s, Testarossas, you, you name it, they're all there. I want to have a Ferrari by the time I'm 20. That was something else I had on the goals. And the other stuff was like, have big muscles, be in shape and, and be a millionaire by the time I was 20. And I, that was my thing. And I used to take that. And when I was at maths at school, I used to go to the back of the page. And yeah, I'm, I'm a great believer in what you focus on, what you get. And the law of attraction is real. So, so yeah, leaving school with no qualifications. I got in big trouble with my parents. Got disowned by my parents. Completely disowned. Didn't want to know. I ended up in a bed sit with my girlfriend, £30 a week. Got evicted out of three bed sits and couldn't afford it. Worked at the North Devon Leisure Centre in Barnstable in England for £2.75 as a lifeguard. Trouble you got in Devon is where, where Barnstable is, is that in the summer, there's loads of work. People go on holiday there. In the winter, it's casual. I had no work. So we were so poor that my family would send me food hampers at Christmas for me and my girlfriend. And it was humiliating. The sofa turned into the bed every night in a tiny bathroom, kitchen, not even a bath, toilet in the kitchen. And we got evicted out of three of them and finally got into a rented house. And then I, I, I cracked the code. Yeah. But I had to go through the pain. And I, at some point, we're in talks at the moment with a company who uh, made Alfie Best, the billionaire, Gypsy Billionaires movie. They want to do one, one on me, a movie, follow me for a year. So we want to go back to that bed sit. Yeah, and it'll be interesting. So it's, uh, And the girlfriend that back then, she actually trains at my schools and comes to my events. She's coming to one of my events in March, business events. So yeah, it's an insane story, but it's all that everyone telling me I couldn't do it made me want to do it. 
That's that's how I work. If someone tells me I can't do something, but my mum, even though she didn't believe in it, she used to say, "There's no such word as can't, Matthew. No such word as can't." I used to always get in my brain because she self-studied as a solicitor. So my memories of her is us boys growing up. Mum come home from work at six o'clock. She was a conveyancer, initial legal executive. She home studied for four children. And so my memories of her having her books by the side of her seat, studying until she fell asleep. So I was really proud of her. She became a lawyer at 42, I believe. So she believed that you can go from nothing. She was a nothing from, with no qualification in Ireland to becoming a solicitor. And that was washing that back. My dad had no faith in me whatsoever. We don't speak today because of it, but... I've kind of got older now and wise. I felt he was a bit tough on me and because uh, I was the dumb one of the family as far as he was concerned. But now I've got older and I've got six kids on my own. I, I, I can understand how tough things must have been with four children living in that recession in 1989. He became the house husband because my mum could earn more money than him. So he looked after us and probably got a bit depressed and so forth. But yeah, interesting. Pain equals pleasure. But you've got to use the pain to motivate you. That's the key. Absolutely. Absolutely. To round this sort of section off, <clears throat> and just to give a bit of substance or something for the audience to measure, I always take everything I see online, certainly by tabloids, is with yeah. a pinch of salt. You have to. Yeah. Um, sometimes they can be wildly off. But one thing I read is that you're, is it MF Marshall? Yeah, Matt, so Matt. you started off as Matt Fidesz Martial Arts Schools. Now the brand is being used for so many things. So they... It's become MF. Okay. So we have MF business mentoring, MF property, and we have MF martial arts, MF dance, MF mentoring, and and it's become a, a brand, basically. Yeah. yeah, and then obviously off, offshoots, depending you on what... You use the fact that it's become a household respected name. It's, well, it's a brand. That's what a brand is. Yeah. And you can just add things. So I get offers all the time. Can, I, can you do this to MF gymnastics or MF, you know, I had one last night, MF golf, someone approached me for. So yeah, it's become an established brand. Yeah. Um, so I heard or read you've got over a thousand franchises and the company has got a net worth of 120 million pounds. How true is that? It's, so we've got more than that now. We've got 1,750. So I checked, so I thought you might ask me that before I come in here today. 1,750 locations and we're across all across the world. We're expanding another 2,000. Um, so... What happened after the lockdown? The lockdown was interesting for me, right? I, I, I kind of struggled with, with that big time. So at 40, I promised my wife that I would calm down a bit because I am just wired up since the age of 16, all about business, property, and just keep growing. But I've got everything you can buy. She's, so I promised I, I would um, chill out a bit and relax. And then flipping, you know what? I won't say it because you'll get a shadow ban. But you know what I mean? Kicked in. <laughs> And that meant, imagine taking all my schools online and Zoom, all looking up to me as the mentor. And I had to say to all my franchisees, no matter what happens, I will sell every house. And I meant it too, because they're my family. I'll sell every one of my houses if I have to, to make sure you're all going to have food on the table, you're going to be okay. I didn't have the answer for them, but we turned everything on Zoom within 24 hours. Now, that put a fire in my belly, thinking, I am not going to let this damn thing ruin what I've built built up all my life. I'm not going to see my life's work. Even though I could retire, I could have said, I got all, I got as many as I could on a Zoom. It's a thousand at a time from Australia as well. And I said, I'm going to work this out. Don't worry. I'm going to assure you all. My, I'm going to sell all my house if I have to. 
Go off the Zoom. It's about when Boris made this announcement. Go off the Zoom, about half past 12 at night. And then I, the person who got me connected to all the Zooms, I'm rubbish advice here. I turned to him and he said, Matt, what are you going to do? So I don't know. We need to work this out. We stayed up all night. Now, so I had that hunger in my belly. When other people wouldn't advertise in that period of time, I'm being careful of my words. I shouldn't have to be, but I know you'll get a YouTube strike if I don't, if I say that word. That when other people wouldn't advertise, when other people were scared to spend money on Facebook ads and mm. go out and make it happen, I was the one telling my franchisees, just get on with it. Now, observe the masses do the opposite. So we grew three times. So before that, my estimated net worth was 40 million. And that was regulated by Ofcom. So I did a TV show called Rich House, Poor House, which I think you've watched. And you, have, you can't just get on that show. You know, you've got to submit your accounts, your property portfolio, and they come back with a figure of what they, what they feel is fair, and they normally downvalue it. So 40 million was my net worth that came out from the Ofcom investigation for me to go on Rich House, Poor House, which they had two episodes from. So the pandemic came, and uh, interesting enough, I thought my property portfolio was going to be a challenge, but, and I got rental insurance for all my properties. So if you miss a payment, the rental insurance kicks in, but I thought they might've gone bust. They have any issues with that with a property portfolio. If anything, they grew in value and people wanted to put their rent first and the government were throwing money at the tenants and they want an issue. So my challenge was, what can I do here to really make it? So I went full on, on advertising, crazy money spent. I, I invested it, it for my franchise out of my own pocket, over £400,000 of money on Facebook ads when no one else was doing it. Scary times. And because I did that, we grew three or four times the size. So I came out of lockdown and I won Entrepreneur 2022. Not one of these award shows where you get given it, it don't mean anything. The same one that Alfie Best won, the billionaire. So it was here, Park Lane, Hilton, London. And I was up against Lloyds Bank, Virgin Money. And I walked in there and I'm thinking, Alfie won it the year before. This is 2022. I thought, I got no chance. Alfie's a billionaire. I'm up against all the, I saw the table plan. I think, look, look who's on that table. I've just wasted my time bringing my family up here. I've got no hope. I was nominated for the award and I won it. And again, you have to submit everything to them, accounts. You can't just, don't just get given it. I won it and I couldn't believe it. And then I won a franchise over the year that year as well. Based on the fact I took the business valuation, it's, it's my net worth valuation. I think they were talking about from 40 million to 120 million. But I, you lumped in some of all that. That's in, how they got to that figure too, is that the only comparison to me was in America that so, it sold for 70 million and I am three or four times the size of them. So if I wanted to sell the business, then that's that's without my property portfolio. And So is it true? I would like to think it's a lot more than that. I would, like, I, I would say brand value is so important. You can't put a value on that. The MF brand now is so big and opens doors. My background, you can't make up, can you? You can't. It's a fairy tale life I've had. You're buying into something that's got tremendous social proof. You put my name in Google, you've got pretty much almost 30 years of media, social media articles of, you know, being connected to the biggest names. You can't put the value rubs off on you. So yeah, I am told. I got told by somebody the other the other day I was speaking to in Las Vegas, who made Gypsy Billionaire, who want to do my my um, movie about my life documentary, whatever you want to call it. He would say that with my brand value combined with everything else, he'd make it'd be more like a, mil, a billion dollars. So they're toying with calling it, maybe I should be talking about this, but it doesn't matter. They were toying with calling it Black Belt Millionaire, which I'm comfortable with. And I said, no, no, we're, from what we've seen and what we see with you and what you're doing, 
it's more like black belt billionaire, uh, you know, but that's brand value. It's worth what everyone's willing to buy it for. I've got no intention of selling. What would you say your net worth, personal net worth is today? I've got no idea. But if you get to that point in life, then you stop counting and then you know you've done well. But yeah, I'm well over like the decamillionaire. I did that by the time I was uh, 25. I was million pound a year earning at 18 years old, which wasn't that difficult to do for me. That was very, very simple. And yeah, I mean, you got to remember, I'm 44. I've been buying property now since I was 18 and, and I'm, I'm heavy in buying it again now. So yeah, it's, it's way up there. With the story that you just shared, the story that I know, because I've listened to other podcasts and I've listened to things online and I've read bits and pieces, plus I've spoken to you now for a number of months and also know, know our mutual friend Rob Moore, yeah, yeah. who shares some really good stories about you. Being bullied, not really being academic and really get along, getting on at school, similar to me. Having your family push back on your idea, finding this niche, because your business, I would say, even still today, is very, very much niche and you cracked it, scaling it up and now you become this very, you've monopolized what you do and you're, you're, yeah. you're very, very successful. That in itself is good enough for a podcast interview. But then you've got this other life, which you've oscillated b between, between the two. And I'm talking about, obviously, being security, being personal bodyguards, and more importantly, a friend to the great king of pop, Michael Jackson. So how the hell did that come about, going from scanning up a martial art uh, business, conquering that, to becoming Michael Jackson's friend and personal bodyguard? Yeah, it's crazy, huh? Mental. When I look back now, I know it's crazy, but back then I just thought it was completely, utterly normal. So I had five martial arts schools. I was already a millionaire. Doing really well. I was making about one and a half million a year. I was, what, 18. And then in the reception of my main martial arts school, where the headquarters were, so we had Barnesville, Biddeford, Ilfracombe, South Moulton, Braunton. So in the main building, I had a parent come up to me and he said, my name's Nick Constable. I still remember his name. I should look him up, actually, because he put me on the map. And he said, um, I've got two kids who train with you. I had a boy and a girl. And I understand you've got no school qualifications. I said, that's true. You are bullied at school. That's true. And uh, I'm a news reporter. Any chance I can interview you and take a picture of you and your car out there, which is a Ferrari 355 Spider. And I'm very honest and open, Stephen, because I sell success, right? I don't sell, actually. I don't need to sell. I've got the social proof speaks for itself. So when parents say to me, oh, you're Ferrari out there making a lot of money, I say, yeah, I do make a lot of money. That's why you bring your kids to me. Don't you want your child to be successful? That's why you send them to school. My program is going to teach them to success and hopefully own a Ferrari like that too when they're 18, 19 as well. Isn't that great? I'm like, wow, you're honest. Yeah, I do want that for my kid. The ones that say, oh, no, I can only just get by and uh, hide the Ferrari around the corner, they don't get anyway. They, people want transparency, especially in today's world. They really want that. How did it come about? So he, he interviewed me. Nothing special, just my story, being bullied at school, and same old thing I've just told you, basically. Took a picture of my car. And I, my, for me, I was searching for significance, right? I wanted recognition from my family. And I wanted final recognition from the public that I've done all right. Doing, I'm doing good. At first, I thought the one school was, was a fluke. And then I pulled it off another four times. I stopped at five locations because the next town was 40 plus miles away and I felt 
that's, I can't get anyone to come work for me to do that. Plus, you're 18, trying trying to employ, employ 30 to 40-year-olds. It's hard, weird for them working for a, basically a teenager, right? So this story, I said to him, is it going to make the local paper? So I wanted to be in that local newspaper in Barnstable. And he said, I think so, um, we'll see. He went away, nothing happened. Now, bear in mind, there's no social media there, okay? No, talking like 97, around there. I think we had MySpace, and email was coming a thing, but not really using it. And then literally three days later, back then when you're in the mainstream media, you knew about it. The landlines would ring off the hook, doorbell going from reporters, going out of public, you're getting recognized instantly, constantly. People wanted to come up to you because each edition of the newspaper is selling 20 million copies back then. I was front page of the Sun newspaper, the Mirror, the Daily Mail. Buddy Boy becomes millionaire. Went everywhere. And that was life-changing. Then on the back of that, what TV channels do is they search through the newspapers. They do it still now via social media as well and look for interesting guests for their TV shows. So I did the TV shows. You might be a bit young to remember, like Trisha was a big morning TV show with 20 million people watching it. Told my story. I did Esther Ramson's one, Kilroy, Richard and Judy. And again, back then, you're getting 20 million viewers watching you pretty much, you know, Back then, it was like half the country. It's grown the population massively since then. So very quick, I became very well known. Then my other big dream was to be on the front cover of magazines. When I was a kid, martial arts fanatic, I'd get my little BMX bike with my pocket money, be three pound, and buy once a month Martial Arts Illustrated magazine. I used to watch all the greats in there. And I love to be in there, you know? And uh, yeah, and I ended up being, the editor tells me, Bob Sykes, other than Bruce Lee, I was the most featured person on Martial Arts Illustrated, anyone else. He used to wind everyone up, that my students would buy it, he knew that, and also it's controversial. Why is this young kid making so much money? But to get back to the crazy stuff, when you have that kind of media attention, you create, you gotta get as many eyeballs on you as you can to be successful. And I had a lot of eyeballs on me over that, that story that guy did. And of, so Yuri Geller, uh, people don't, don't remember him, or what depends on what country you're watching you're from. He's famous in every country in the world. Very successful, hugely successful. No more for bending spoons, a bit like Tony Robbins with his, with his fire walk. Yuri went down the positive mind thinking type route. Tony Robbins went down the firework route. Very similar level of fame around the world. Household names. His bodyguard left a message on my answer phone saying that Yuri Geller wanted to meet me. I didn't take it very seriously at first because I remember the spoon bending thing as a kid. I was born in 79. So I remember all that in the 80s. Yuri's mega fame was in the 70s and 80s. I mentioned it to my mum. She said, you need to go and meet that guy because I wasn't going to go meet him. So you need to go and meet him. He is massive. He's famous everywhere in the world. I grew up on him, Matt. So um, I had a half an hour appointment at his home. When I arrived, the gates opened in Sonnenland Thames, his house next to George Clooney's. It's incredible. It's like a replica of the White House. 20 million pound palace. Drove down thinking, wow, this is where I want to be. You know, He gave me half an hour with him and we got on really well. And why he wanted to meet me for is that he understood that kids were getting bullied so bad and it was a bit of an epidemic out there and we want to do something about it. So he did like mental health, positive mindset and I would do self-defense for the kids and we'd give a free VHS tape out to all the schools in the UK and around the world because he's famous everywhere. And we didn't do that project in the end. We actually made some fitness videos together. He did positive mind think, thinking. I did like a kickbox aerobics. And we released it in Asia. And it was a bestseller, number one out there. And we became firm friends. And um, one, when Yuri tells you to do something, you do it. 
So people think about it and think, oh, he's just a spoon bender and whatever, you know. The guy is a legend. I mean, he's got his own museum in Israel right now where from things he went, Elvis Presley gave to him and Muhammad Ali and John Lennon. And the phone calls that used to come in when I was with Yuri Geller was unbelievable. And when you're around someone like that, 18, who's so positive, who could say, mate, you could do anything in your life. And he saw something spark in me. So about three o'clock in the morning, he called my landline at my home. And it's not unusual for successful people to do that, especially celebrities like him, who are famous all around the world, who've got businesses all around. The, he needs to be awake. So he called me at 3 a.m. He said, you need to come to my house now. And I said, Yuri, it's 3 a.m. Why? What's, what's wrong? He said, nothing's wrong. Everything's great. If you don't come to my house now, it'll be the biggest mistake in your life. So, well, you've got to tell me why. I've got to tell my missus, you know? Said, Matt, you've got a Ferrari. Stop moaning. I love you. See you soon. Bye. Put a phone down on me. I thought, flipping heck. I said, well, I'm going to... So I had, a, I had this massive round with my missus, right? And I got in the car and I drove from Barnstable, I drove from Barnstable to Reading. I think I arrived about 6.30 in the morning. Gates open, nothing really unusual, drove down this thing. And I saw these three black SUV cars outside. Yuri greets me outside. He had a bit of a cheeky grin on his face, but nothing really other than that. I walk into the living room and this skinny guy comes up to me and he bows to me. And he, he called me Master Fidesz in the martial arts world, but that's kind of the way it works. Um, he says, hi, Master Fidesz. He bows to me. My name is Michael Jackson. Pleased to meet you. I'm thinking... This is a prank TV show. Yeah, Yuri's got me on a... Back then we had all these prank TV shows where you prank your friends and stuff. And, and I was on TV a lot. And I'm thinking, I, this, this is a joke, surely. And I soon enough realized, I mean, he, it was Michael Jackson. You know, I was like, what the heck? It turned out they're best buddies. And I went on to, you know, we became firm friends. We stayed like for three days. We didn't sleep, talking, chatting. And we became very close friends. And he went on to be best man at Yuri Geller's wedding. And I'll go and hang out with him wherever he was in the world. And then after a year of being his friend, I realized that he was getting ripped off, Stephen. Everyone was ripping him off. But, so bear in mind, there's this old misconception that Michael Jackson made me a millionaire. I was already a millionaire and he trusted me because I didn't need his money. I never charged him a penny. I did it out of friendship. It was a non-transactional relationship. That was it. So there was never, he offered me money, but I wouldn't take it. He offered me crazy money to work with him full time. But my businesses, I still had to be present for. But what I did have is he had the loyalty in me and I had a network of instructors who I could supply as security guards to hold back crowds and so forth. And I'll take care of him when I go out personally, whenever he's in the UK, or if he needs me in America or Paris, he'd ring me and I'll be there. You know, and I, I would be very loyal. I remember taking my wife to Lanzarote once and we got there for two days. So it was my first wife, by the way, my rehearsal wife, I call her. It's probably contributed to the issue actually. And Michael called me and he said, I'm at New York. I'm just about to get on the Concord. And I need you to meet me at Heathrow Airport. I'm like, Ugh. I'm just trying to repair a, a marriage that was going downhill. I'm in Lanzarote. And he was, no one says no to Michael Jackson, right? Maybe I should have done that then. So I said, I, luckily for me, I said to me, my ex-wife, I said, I need to go, go back. Michael's coming to London. He needs me. He's got no one else he can trust. She's like, oh, that's great. You snap your fingers for him, as always. Looks on, there's no flights. There's no airplanes. I think, oh, got myself. I called Michael back. I said, Mike, I can't get out of Lanzarote. It's a small island in the Canary Islands. I can't get back to London. You have to get someone else to help you. I maybe can get sent someone. He said, oh, don't worry about that. I'll sort that out for you. Half an hour later, he organized a private plane to come and pick me, me up. And uh, yeah, Michael Jackson, he could just do anything. And that was his belief system. I picked him up from Terminal, terminal 5 Heathrow and drove him 
to um, we were staying at Higher Holborn. I don't think the hotel's there anymore. It might be still there. Renaissance Hotel, Higher Holborn. And um, I lived with him there for a couple of weeks. But yeah, he became a great friend of mine, but there was never any money transactional relationship. And I think that's why the friendship went on for so long, 10 years, right to the very end. And all the security guards, we bin them all off, all the bodyguards who were just ripping them off. He can't even answer his phone because he's got people around him who are listening to his conversations, telling stories. And then, yeah, the last public events he ever did was I was present at, the special ones, you know, and uh, yeah, he was, he was a good mate of mine. I can only imagine, so my dad's got part ownership of a security company, which does key holding, man guarding, for a whole different CCTV, etc. <clears throat> and they're currently looking after a job in the old Kent Road. It's, it's off the backing of Grenfell because yeah. uh, a lot of the local authorities are fearful that some of the buildings might go up and there's this, this crazy scenario at the moment where we have to guard this tower block 24-7 and there's going to be no fight. It's just, it's just mental. So my dad always talks about the politics inside security and also the red tape you have to go through. Yeah. But I can imagine back in the day, there was no red tape. There was no regulation. There was no licensing. No. So like, was it just as simple as, I'm a martial artist. I'm a businessman. Michael Jackson wants me to look after him as and when he's around. And I just literally are there with him. And if anyone tries to get near him or start a fight, I'm hard as now so I can d defend him. Was it really as black and white as that? Black and white is one of his famous hits, right? Was that meant to be in that <laughs> question? Um, Excuse the pun. Michael, looking back now, Michael probably knew that meeting me, trusted friend of Yuri Geller, who's Michael's best friend, that um, already financially independent, didn't need his money, didn't ask him for anything, didn't need him for anything. He probably knew, he's a very smart guy. You don't get to be the most famous man in the world and make billions and be a clown like everyone thinks. He's very, very intelligent, Michael Jackson was. Yeah, he made mistakes with media and stuff and some things he didn't quite understand how to portray things, but he, he was intelligent. So yeah, he probably knew. I think Yuri Geller also was looking for people to put in his inner circle that he could trust because it was his mate. But no, um, what happened used to happen, whenever I used to go out to public functions with Michael, because I'm the one who's six foot four, and back then I had muscles, I don't have them anymore, and so forth, and I'm the martial arts guy, I was protective of my mate. I was protective of it. I didn't like the way the paparazzi were treating my friend. So I would, I would naturally go and stand by my mate and, and have hold of him, you know? And, and um, it, I was like his unofficial bodyguard initially. The, the media were reporting me pictures of it. I was his mate. And then it just became like a running joke. Matt, you're going to, you know, you're going to come with me. Please come to me this event. Please be on my side. You know, come. I don't want to go to this award show unless you're going to be there. I don't trust anyone other than you. And, and that's how it came about. Then in the end, I said, look, Mike, whatever you want, I'll be there. And, uh, you know, I'll be there for you guys. And you, uh, any public events, anything you're uncertain about, or if you want to supply my people, like my brother-in-law, he had access to. He used to stand outside his bedroom door all night in hotel suites because fans and the public used to try and get to Michael Jack's wood would get out wherever he was. But our relationship is that I never had any training in bodyguarding, never had any security training, never had any intention of doing it. I've never done it since. I've helped a few people out at Michael's request. That was it. He was my mate and I needed to take care of my friend. And maybe I got too involved, but I couldn't leave him stranded. He was going for a rough old ride, being the most famous man on this planet. I think he is still today. 
So we had this trusted inner circle of my family and my network. And I knew that I could put people around him. But the relationship with me is that the normal bodyguards, they would be outside the door, outside the hotel. I would share a hotel suite with him. I'd have a bedroom off his hotel suite. And we'd, you know, we would, he would drink whiskey and wine and dance to James Brown and Lionel Richie and Diana Ross and sing and would watch TV and fall asleep and just like mates would. Problem I had, Stephen, is that you, it's not normal now, and I understand that, but you imagine coming back to Barnstable when my mates, well, people would say, you're 18, 19, 20, what'd you do at the weekend, Matt? This before it's publicly known that I was, he was my best mate. What'd you do at the weekend? I, I hanged out with Michael Jackson, Britney Spears, Yuri Geller, David Blaine, Daryl Hannah. We got a curry and watched The Matrix together at Yuri Geller's house. They think I'm loopy, wouldn't they? But that was the truth. I messed your microphone. That was the truth of the matter. So I used to make things up. She said, I did nothing. I'd stay in with the girlfriend or stay, staying with the wife. And um, and eventually I said to Michael, I said, Michael, do me a favor. Just can me and you be seen together? Because I can't keep lying to everyone about where I am at weekends and and my other half's going crazy. So yeah, yeah, sure. Let's, and where do we go? We went to a book launch. Yeah. And he, 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 he turned up unannounced at a book launched. Paparazzi went absolutely mad. And that was the first time I was photographed by the side of Michael, which he kind of endorsed to the mainstream media. And I went absolutely crazy from that point. Everyone wanted to be my friend. Everyone wanted to get a piece of Michael Jackson. And they wanted to be my friend for the wrong reasons too. I had to become very paranoid. And that's still an element of that today as well. Yeah, it was mad, Stephen. I mean, I can't even describe those days and those years, but I didn't appreciate it back then. I wish I did. Uh, uh, but um, one thing we did do, everything was filmed. So I got over 100 hours of footage of me and Michael behind the scenes because everything was filmed. Michael wanted everything on camera because people would throw themselves under the car and sue him or the fans would want to meet him and they would get hurt by, mis by mistake, end up in hospital. They know Michael's got a good heart and he would visit them in hospital. So we had that risk. So everything was filmed and he used to say to me, Matt, can you store these, this footage for me? And if I ever get sued then I might need you to call upon you for it and be a witness. So I, so when he passed away, I had all this footage that I've recorded. We've got good stuff too, like us going around the houses, House of Parliament, um, birthday parties, Christmas together, all this type of stuff. We've got some great stuff as well. Um, but yeah, he didn't mind filming it. He trusted that we got, I'll never do anything with it because it's not meant to be released. It was there for his own security and safety, um, but that'll be stored away and... If his kids want to see it one day, yeah, of course. But but yeah, it was a interesting time, to say the least. But that accelerated my career. Do you know, people ask me all the time, would I be where I am if it weren't for Michael Jackson? No, because he taught me how to franchise here in London. Yeah, Billy, have you heard the saying? I think Rob Moore would have told you that billionaires are more interested in you than they, because they get asked so many questions about their own lives. And I understand that now, because I get quizzed to death about my own life all the time. And I want to know about, normal people's lives because my life's not normal and um, michael in a hotel suite one night we were bored out of our brains because we couldn't just go out and do anything at all he was quizzing me how many martial arts schools you got now so still five still five so yeah you need to get your game on matt i said yeah but I, the nearest town michael is 40 miles away he said so what he said i've got the biggest selling album in the world called thriller have you ever heard of it i said of course i have and i'm the poor boy from gary and indiana sharing a two-bed house with nine other siblings and dad who goes to work with no shoes and having handouts in the family i'm famous in every country of the world i've got my record in the country of the world. why can't you get there so because i can't get anyone to travel from here to here ain't gonna happen 
Because you've got to stop your small f- mind thinking. So you've got to franchise it out. So no one's ever done that in martial arts before. And he goes, that's exactly, I remember him pointing at me, seriously, that's exactly why you've got to do it. Be the first, be a pioneer, not a follower. And I was quite dismissive of it at the time, but he got a napkin out, I wish I kept it, and he wrote down all the steps I have to do. Manage the PR, manipulate the media, um, build a brand, script everything out, understand marketing, understand retention of the client, and so forth. And and then he introduced me to his branding attorney, solicitor, whatever you want to call it. And then he kept me accountable. And that was the painful part. Michael Jackson would be ringing me for a very different reason. How many schools you open, Matt? You know, uh, what have you done? Only done 10 this month? Then I'll throw the question back at him. How have you done, Michael? And he said, oh, just sign a do- deal for $80 million to tour Korea. And I'll come off the phone feeling like, crap. You know, i got to up my game. I wanted, so I wanted, be- I wanted to beat Mike. He was my competition. I wanted to earn what he was earning. I wanted to be where he is, you know. And, but the deal with Michael was that at the beginning when we first met, the first thing he said with me, he said, you teach me to break balls, Matt. I'll teach you the moonwalk. And he never kept his pie. I taught him to break balls, but he never taught me the moonwalk. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a one, hell of a, one hell of a friendship, you know. The misconception about Michael Jackson um, Maybe this is my own version of it. I, I've never met the man. I really wish I saw him in concert. I just know he was an absolute legend and phenomenal performer and yeah. would resonate with so many people around the world, which is really, really impressive. You know, sometimes you can resonate with your own community or your own, the public in your own country, but when you do it in every single nation around the world, I mean, you're just, a, a, you're almost like a living God, right? But, some people might say, okay, he was good at what he was good at, which is performing, singing, writing songs, but everything else, he was, uh, let's say, a little bit naive to. What is the misconception about Michael Jackson? How brilliant was he as a business person? Yeah, he was an absolute business genius. He, in, in what way? He made MTV. He was the first person to do like group dancing, which everyone does now on, on with the music videos. He came up with the concept of the music video and did long form. He made he, he, he wouldn't allow me to call it that. He would cause it. He would call it um, short films, basically. He um, when he when he, when we're around like a meeting room in his business, he'll put his glasses on and he would be ruthless. Michael would be ruthless. He got two kind of sides to Michael. You got his dad. Ruthless character, very well known, like Joseph Jackson was tough on his kids. And then you had his mum, very loving, lovely lady, kind heart, just like Michael. And he could switch. He could be ruthless. So he would, um, his goals were massive, Stephen. I remember once, I've seen it, I've been there. He told me that in the house that he bought, it's called Havenhurst. He was so into Tony Robbins and goal setting. Tony refers to him on his personal power um, program that he has have the biggest endorsement of all time. He wrote on the mirror, he wrote, I want to sell over 100 million al- um, albums worldwide and be the biggest star. And every day he got up, looked to the mirror, and that was his, in his face. That was his thing. It's still there now. It's still in his bedroom now for people to see. Obviously, I've got the privilege to see it. And uh, he was very goal-orientated, extremely shrewd. People used to say to, to, uh, to me all the time about... He used to hang out on Neverland. He used to, and Michael used to say to me, people think I just hang out on Neverland all the time and I'm not, you know, I'm not, 
on it. He knew everything, even so much. When we come come to London, we'd go to the record stores. There's footage of this online. Go to record stores, and he wanted to check that his records were being distributed properly by his music label, Sony Music. So we'd pitch up, just me, him, and one other bodyguard. Turn up, get to the Michael Jackson section. People are flicking through, and they go, "Hi." How are you? And he'd just check, oh, that album's in place, that album's in place. Then he'd buy them to make sure their, their, their quality was good. And before you know it, we shut down Oxford Street and we would have to go into the fire exit and get police to come and help us get out because word got out and the, they shut down all the escalators because everyone wanted to get near and have a picture or touch Michael Jackson or shake his hand. It was mental. But yeah, it was, um, he, he, he knew it. Back then, I used to think in the early years that maybe he didn't know how big a star he was. Yeah, I, I learned to realize that Michael Jackson knew his worth. Now, so whenever we would go places, he was also took advantage. You recently had someone on your podcast who talked about um, when we would go to Harrods. So Harrods used to be shut down for us. Muhammad Al-Fahad was a good friend of Michael's. Muhammad Al-Fahad used to mentor me too. He owned Harrods and... Ritzo Tower in Paris, lots of properties all over London, all around the world. He shut it down. And Mohammed would encourage Michael to, uh, this guy said that he used to get free gifts. That's not how it worked for Michael, right? Mohammed would encourage Michael. And I would see Michael Jackson's blow two million pounds in an hour. Really? And then Mohammed would be like, Michael, this would look good in your house here. This would look good at Neverland. And not in a not nasty way. I mean, Mohammed opened up the store for us in the middle of the night. So it's only fair that Michael would pay for that privilege, you know? And he got some things he got for three. We used to get phone calls, like the latest BMW come out. And I say, Michael, do you want it? He said, like, time to send it to Neverland. Hoping that they'll get a picture of him being papped in it one day. But yeah, um, hotels and stuff, he used to trade off. So he would never pay for a hotel suite. So um, in my era, he would just basically say, Michael Jackson's coming on, the, you know, the big name. The publicity I'm going to give that hotel for staying there is going to be insane. These are £10,000 a night hotel suites. So he would do a deal with them. A lot of the mag a lot of the hotels would have like a glossy magazine back then to represent the hotel. So he'd give an interview, but his stay at all the hotels around the world would be free on that basis of the publicity that they'll get. They're allowed to confirm that Michael Jackson is staying there. And uh, yeah, so if, whenever he'd go to somewhere, he'd make sure that visit in England, he'd, it'd be monetized. It, it wouldn't just be there for a concert or for a fan club visit. This whole trip would be monetized. Free accommodation, who'd have earnings on the back of it, endorsement deals and things. And the first meeting we ever had whenever we got to a new city was around the table in his hotel suite. And he would say, okay, everyone, I need you to think big. How do I make front pages over the next couple of days? What can I do? How can I get billions of dollars worth of publicity for free to sell more albums and to get the next biggest concert tour? What can I do? And we'd all mastermind ideas of what he can come up with. Sticky tape on his nose, but you know, Tapes on, you know, it's crazy stuff. I mean, a lot of it backfired on him since he's passed away. I understand that. But yeah, he was the magician of media manipulation. Unbelievable. Absolutely. I'll tell you one thing, Stephen. I, I, came, I was concerned about the sticky tape on his nose thing, right? And it used to bother me. Because I used to always read the stories, like everyone else, about his nose is going to fall off. And one time, he, I was waiting for him. It took ages. And we were going somewhere. I can't, we were going to a business meeting. Um, it was high-profile business meeting with the Sultan of Brunei. And he come out of his room finally, and he had all this sticky tape on his nose. I was like, what the heck? And uh, he saw me staring at it, and he goes, listen, Matt, I know you've got a problem with this. And maybe embarrassing walking with your friend and being packed with me wearing this. 
let me tell you something. This is allergy tape. That's all it is. But when I walk out that door, it's going to create this allergy tape. It's going to create billions of dollars publicity because everyone's going to say my nose is falling off. And it's money, it's publicity that money cannot buy. And I'm going to sell records on the back of it, get more endorsement deals. And if I ever perform again, you watch the reflection it's going to have on that. And I said, okay, so you're okay then? Because of course I'm okay. I've got makeup on. I've done all this myself. I've done it for the last hour. That's why I'm late. Let's go crush it. And, done it. and, and, he, and yeah, went outside and he was right. Next couple of days, two page spread, front page, Michael Jackson's nose has fallen off. I don't know. Uh, I wasn't going to, well, I was going to ask something else, which I w- really want to get onto to talk about, you know, this, this documentary that you, 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 you kindly directed me towards in the last yeah. few days called Chase the Truth, Michael Jackson. And it, I found it really, really interesting and actually refreshing. But I'm going to ask you a bit of a, this is m- more of a m- me asking you for getting a podcast. It's just me asking because I'm, I'm curious. I've never, never known the answer to this. But admittedly, admittedly, I've never searched for it. Sure. Um, as his friend, yeah. someone got to really know him and spend a lot of time with him as a friend and also, you know, business affiliates. Um, did he ever tell you why, why he, um, why he converted himself from 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 a a black guy to a white guy like stained his okay stained I'll, I'll his skin? You, I'll tell you the truth about that. So I've seen Michael with his boxer shorts on, right? And he used to describe himself as. They make fun of himself that he was a spotted cow. He has a skin disease called vitiligo. This was confirmed, by the way, in his autopsy when he died. So it's not me just sticking up to look after my mate. It's just confirmed by, you know, the people who took his body in after he passed away. And, and they, they confirmed he's got serious vitiligo. Vitiligo is a skin disease where you lose the pigmentation of your skin. And it goes back way back in his family. It started in his early 20s. And... Unfortunately for Michael, it was on his face. He had it on his neck. If you look at back at some of the old pictures, you'll be able to notice. I'll be able to show you them. So when he was doing Thriller and stuff, it became a bit of an issue. And obviously he was in big time spotlight. So the face is hard, to, especially for a black guy. It was difficult. So as makeup artists, try to smooth it over with like a, a black makeup. But it got worse. The, the vitiligo got worse and worse. It started breaking out more and more and more and more. So come to a point where it, it, it was getting silly, you know? It was all down his neck and white patches and so forth. I think there's a famous model who's kind of like... Yeah, she done, is, yeah. done this now, actually. Yeah, mm. yeah. I wish they did it when Michael's around. So so did Michael Jackson make himself white? No, well, he was going white, whether he likes it or not. And uh, Hence why we had to keep him covered in umbrellas and sunlight, because he had no UV protection. He gets skin cancer really easily. So people used to call me the umbrella man, because you see me holding umbrellas with him all the time to shade him in the sun. And he went from a man who used to love water parks and being out in the sun, swimming, to not being able to go out in the sun at all. So he decided to to go to go white, basically. And uh, and yeah, when he died, they found in all his drawers and stuff. The doctors tried this this cream. I think it's called porcelina. And it's not intentional, but he had no choice. What else could he do? You you know, I think in today's world, people would have respected it because if you're different now and you're honest but then back then when he's got all these adoring fans it's not because he didn't want to be black he loved his heritage he loved who he was but he couldn't he couldn't do it he used to say to me too it's like why are they so fascinated about my skin color Matt so well what do you mean Mike so, well I got this skin disease no matter how many times I tell them he went like Oprah Winfrey and told about you've got vitiligo they won't believe me and I said so that's up to them they don't believe me. I don't really care but 
But you're a white guy, Matt. You white guys and girls, you're out there. He said, the Suntown lotion business is a multi-billion dollar industry. You sit out in the sun to try and make yourself dark like me. And no one gets talks about that. But because I'm Michael Jackson and I've got a descendancy and I've decided to have to, have to go one way or the other. And his whole body wasn't like that, by the way. He's patchy all over. It was something he had to maintain. Then um, it's a problem. So how does that work? And when I, and when I was trying to make themselves brown, and get as dark as possibly can, and everyone's giving me grief all the time and hassle, and he was very upset about that. He can't understand that. What about like changing the nose, though? So I understand yeah. about the skin color, but he actually converted his nose from a typical black person's yeah. nose, shape of their nose to more like white features, I would say. Yeah. So he he used to get teased by his family a lot by the size of his nose, being called big nose and all this stuff. And he used to say his dad used to be the main one. Joseph used to, like he forgive them in the end, but tease him, called him big nose and your nose is big. Oh, you didn't get that from me. You got that from your mum, And he was, he was pretty, you didn't get it from my side of the family. It, it hurt him a lot, you know? So he was doing his spinning practice. So Michael used to dance about three hours a day on average. And he was do those spins. He could do, at one stage he was doing 50 spins in a row. It was unbelievable. He fell over, broke his nose. And he saw it was the perfect opportunity while he was under anesthetic to, to just get the nose done smaller. He didn't go too far with it. So Michael would play on it. So yeah, he did have several, I, I don't know how many operations he had. And it's not a discussion I went into detail with him on, but clearly he's had operations on his nose. He didn't want to, back then, plastic surgery, Botox, we couldn't talk about it. It just wasn't a thing. So he had to maintain this image because he had record companies behind him who paid him millions, billions. You know, he had to protect that image, what we call personal brand now. It was an image back then. There was no such thing as personal brand. He had to go all out. And uh, yeah, you know, what he, he considered himself, I mean, there's a drawing out there. He drew how he wanted to look. He considered himself a work of art. He was an artist. He's also a painter. He had his own bunker he's his escape place where he could go and he had a, a mentor teach him how to art incredible drawer sketches and stuff and when he died they, they, they opened up this bunker and found all these drawings that michael jackson did and uh it was amazing just as good at singing and dancing as he was he's an artist all around he designed a lot of his own stuff but yeah he um his work of art you know yeah. his work of art but in the end he would play on that so the, a lot of the times mm. the media would have seen him is not how i would have seen him I've seen Michael wake me up at four in the morning to go in a black cab taxi ride around London, just me and him. And he didn't look anything like that. He would make himself look ridiculous to, to, to wind the media up. He used to say to us, if you want to be, if you want people to be interested in you, you have to be interesting. That's what he used to say, relevant. Madonna's very good at doing that too. And he used to say, um, Matt, you've got to make sure when we go out, my life remains the greatest mystery on earth. That's why, that's why I had the face mask and everything else. People got to keep guessing what's behind that face mask. So he used to play with it, put like his makeup on his nose and make it look strange. And do you know one time he, he was, do you remember the uh, sticky tape on his fingers? So we're, we're getting ready to go out. And we're super late, like three hours late. He's playing tape. I said, Michael, what, why are you putting plasters on your fingers for? So why? So yeah, you just, you just answer the question. So the whole world would ask, why has Michael Jackson got plaster on his fingers? I thought, that's pretty smart. There you go, Matt. Hence the one white glove, the trousers are too short, the big glossy, the sparkly white socks, the same shoes he wore every day. I mean, you can see like people like um, Simon Carroll may have, you know, he wears the same outfit in public all the time, doesn't he? You don't see him about that white shirt, black trousers, trousers would be too high for him, the same shoes. 
So he had his own image, but behind the door, the jacket used to come off, the, the makeup used to come off, mask was thrown away. You know, he, he would just become like, grab a bottle of wine. Well, we couldn't go out because of madness, but we had our own little world inside uh, our world, basically. I, um, I used to work for a sales company and I remember exactly where I was when we all found out that Michael Jackson had died. Yeah. Um, so with the sales company, I think it was like a Thursday night and the owner said, we're all going to go to the cinema as a group, eat some food and go and watch, what, go and watch something. I can't remember what it was at the time. So as we pulled up and we all got out of our cars and started walking towards, uh, we was in Blue Water, but walking from the car park to the actual Odeon Cinema, wherever it was, uh, it come through on people's phones. And I remember there was a, a this obnoxious, like kind of fat uh, sales guy who was very loud and outspoken. I won't mention his name on here, but bit of a dick and uh he went oh look michael jackson's done no someone said it so like is michael jackson's done i mean good he's a pedophile mm. and i remember thinking oh, how the hell do you know that and the only reason why you're saying it is because you're regurgitating what the media have said or in, in a roundabout way and i thought do you know what though he's not the only person that thinks that there's multiple people out there yeah. that will think that you've got the fans who would live and die for michael jackson then you've got the people that doesn't matter what people say, he's guilty, he's guilty, he's guilty. And then you've got these people that kind of sit in between and don't really care. And I'm thinking that's really, really sad because he's not there to defend himself and, and everything else. And there's multiple cases where child sex abuse cases were put onto him. Yeah. And it was just a real, real tough time for him because there could have been a moment in time where Michael Jackson could have spent most of his rest of his life behind bars because he was wrongly probably convicted yeah thankfully you 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 directed me to this documentary called michael jackson chase the truth and you're on it and there's some really interesting characters on it and there's this guy called michael smallcomb who was a journalist author who wrote making michael yeah and i thought he i mean you were really good on it but also him i think he spoke really 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 well um this moment in time about michael jackson being this perceived nonce or pedophile yeah, yeah. Or, or maybe rape rapist i mean how hard was that time for you and him as you were going through all these cases it, it was all a bit strange so first of all bear in mind i've got an organization with thousands hundreds of thousand kids linked to it and i knew michael right from like 97 right through to 2009 98 to 2009 I would not associate myself with someone, Stephen, who was anywhere like that. I was the guy in the room with him, right? It was bizarre because when it was... So I, I lived out and spoke to him regularly when he went through the final trial in 2004, 2005, and where he was accused of child molestation and charged on 14 counts of child molestation by a boy who was accused of called Gavin Avizo. I also knew, which you now know, that the previous one, I would have been at school then, in 1993, Jordan, Jordan Chandler, I knew that Michael's people decided to settle that for a commercial decision, and Michael did not pay the money out. His insurance company paid it out. He didn't have any bloody choice. He was in the middle of a tour around the world. Billions were at stake. Not, not for, he didn't need the money, but all the other careers and stuff. So whether Michael Jackson wanted it or not, he wanted to go to trial and fight that 
allegation off because they, they didn't file a criminal suit. I don't know if you know that. They Back in 93, they filed a civil only, which is a bit strange, isn't it? If, you're, if one of my six kids were molested, I would want them to go to jail and be hung. I'm telling you, like in a gas chamber or something. So this family, they went after his money. They didn't file a criminal suit. So his insurance company decided, listen, you got this world tour. It's called Dangerous. He was taking part all around the world. We're in the middle of it. This is killing your health, Michael. And whether you like it or not, his insurance company, we're just going to get rid of it, pay it off. And he didn't want that. He wanted to go to trial and fight it, but there was nothing to go and fight. He had to get back on the road and do his thing. At the time it went and gone, probably the worst thing he ever done in his life. But then he had no control of it, Stephen. He, he didn't, when you have record companies, you're just an artist. You're not in charge of everything. They dictate what you do, you know? Just because he's Michael Jackson's music doesn't mean he necessarily owns it. He's, he's told where to be at what time. He used to say to me, he, he just hates living life on a schedule. When I was with him, when his calendar was put for the door for what he's doing the next day, he's like, oh, I hate living my life on a schedule. Wish I could just wake up and do what I want when I want and not have all these appointments and be Michael Jackson. So I knew it was utter nonsense. And I knew the family as well in 2005. I also knew that it was getting to the point where he was helping him too much. So this boy had died of cancer. And um, he wanted to meet famous people, Make-A-Wish Foundation. Chris Tucker did Rush Hour 2, famous comedian, actor. He went and the kid wanted to, he went to visit him. He's on the wish list. And the kid wanted to meet Michael Jackson. Now, Chris Tucker did some moves in Rush Hour 1 and 2. And Michael thought it was hilarious and they became good friends. So Chris Tucker thought, well, I can make that happen. So he called Michael. So Michael is this kid is dying of cancer. Will you meet him? So sure. Um, now, Neverland, by the way, is not Michael's home home. He lived out of hotel suites. That's where he felt most comfortable. Security downstairs, bodyguards. When you're at Neverland, he still has to have security bodyguards. Over 150 staff at Neverland, right? So he couldn't, everyone's staring at him when he's walking around. And he, if he's walking around his, his, the, the, um, the Neverland ranch, he had people follow him because people used to parachute in and pretend so that they could try and, it was a mistake to try and meet Michael Jackson. So I knew he got... He was helping his family out. He bought the mama home. Bizarrely, she was called Janet Jackson, just bizarrely. And I believe he bought the father a home. And then I remember Michael bought this boy a computer. And then we would get phone calls coming into his PA, Michael's personal assistant, saying, oh, the computer's wrong. Um, the boy wants to speak to Michael about getting it fixed. And they will just say, I'll just tell them to take it to so-and-so and they get it fixed. And now he wants to speak to Michael. So basically, he just wanted to get get hold of Michael Jackson and speak to him again. In the end, the accountants will come in and say, enough's enough, Michael. You're giving away millions per year. You can't keep doing this. Not just that, you should pay for people's funerals and do all this stuff in secret, visit kids' hospices and get them the best doctors, heart consultants, get them organ donations. Didn't publicize any of this. Give away billions. If, you, if you're looking at book Book of Records, he is the, one of the top celebrity donators to charity of all time. No one wants to print that. So we kind of saw it coming because this kid got nasty and was saying, if this don't happen, then I'm going to say Michael's nasty to me and all this. This is strange. So that was alarm bells off. We would tell Michael and then and this account say, oh, Mr. Jackson, that's enough. And we changed the telephone numbers every other week. We changed the telephone numbers for Michael. So the only way they could get to him was through me or through the bodyguards at the time. Or if they had the fake name, we would stay under. So he was cut out of Michael's life. And then suddenly came out this allegation, I think based on the 1993. Now bear in mind, I'm there showing hotel suites for him, right? And this whole thing that Michael's into young boys, what a load of nonsense. We, any kid 
if you with Michael Jackson, they gravitate to him. And it, it was flipping girls around him. I've got hundreds of hours of footage of, of girls sat on his lap, kids, women, grown women sat on his lap. They would just gravitate to him. So this whole nonsense that Neverland was just a place of young boys and the problem we had, right? And it was a challenge. And this is the biggest mistake Michael made, maybe. He was told by Motown Records, which is who's discovered him and signed him up, the Jackson Five, that never show anybody that you're married, that you have a girlfriend, or your sexuality. Whether you're gay or straight, don't do it because you'll cut your fan base off. Don't before we came on the podcast, we talked about he told me, don't talk about politics, religion, or race. You'll cut your fan base. Now he took that. Andy Warhol done it. Yeah. You took he took that as gospel, right? Mm. From Motown. That was his education. So the truth of the matter is he was into women. Michael Jackson didn't have a problem with little boys. He, he had girlfriends. He was married several times. We had to hide that and go to our greatest lengths to not let the fans know he was married or who he was dating at the time. I used to sneak along with other bodyguards and his best friend, Mark Lester, who was in that, in that documentary you watched, who played Oliver Twist. We used to sneak the girls into his hotel suite so the fans and the media didn't notice. That was Michael's thing. Towards the end of his life, we used to say, I think it's about time now because it's kind of backfiring with the age of social media coming out, that you, 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 you know, you come out with your wife or your girlfriend. You need to show that you're into women because it's backfiring on you, Mike. And then he obviously passed away. Then, then um, the, the Statue of Limitations of Los Angeles, if you, the two main witnesses we had were Wade Robson and James Safechuck. And they were, our, especially Wade, the same age as me, he gave a testimonial, was called up first at the Michael Jackson trial, that Michael did nothing to him, and he was incredible, told the honest truth, went away. And he came, after Michael died, he actually performed at the tribute concert with Janet Jackson a week after he died. He asked, he was getting married, he asked, could he get married at Neverland? Why would you do that if you're molested at Neverland? That's a bit weird, isn't it? If you're mentally tortured. And we, we basically, yeah, Mike Small, Smallcombe, we just ripped this whole documentary and the, the narrative around Michael Jackson apart. Unfortunately, he's not here to defend himself. But it's all that complete nonsense. So I could understand how this, these two witnesses for the trial in 2005 were getting away with talking about this. When was this, five or six years ago? It turns out that if you commit perjury, if you lie on oath, in Los Angeles, I believe it's like seven or eight years, you get past the point you can't be done, you can't get in trouble. So they're in the safe zone. And they sued Michael Jackson's estate for hundreds of millions of dollars each. And um, that wasn't featured in the documentary that's been made about him, by the way. No one talks about their after money. And no matter how much we talked about it, or Michael Jackson's nephews or brother said, they're suing for money. Do you realize that? No one wanted to print it. I had a big tabloid, the biggest in the world, call me from New York saying, Matt, we want to interview about these allegations and this documentaries come out about Michael. So sure. Why don't you interview his girlfriend who's done a book, best-selling book about her relationship with Michael? Why don't you interview her, interview this girl, this woman? So, oh yeah, I know. We know about the girlfriends. We know about the wives. But it goes against the narrative of the story of the world. And to generate advertisers to buy our newspapers and web clicks, that won't work, mate. I said, I just forget it. I just put the phone down on them. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. The guy had a problem with women. He didn't have a problem with... He's Michael Jackson. Everyone loved him. Tita Jackson used to joke about it. He used to say... Um, Tito used to say, uh, when Michael's out in Neverland, big mistake, don't ever send your girlfriend there for the day because they fall in love with him. He uses his charm, and before you know it, yeah, I won't leave it alone with my ex-wife. I mean, he, the guy was, he was just a charmer. He's a lovable guy, most caring, loving guy in the world. 
Yeah, but over the years, obviously before he died, I mean, he he made so much money because of the it was just this this. I, mean, I was going to say earlier, like. There's certain individuals in this world before and today that can just shut down countries and shut that well not countries but like shut down areas because yeah. they're so 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 powerful. It took because, about three minutes. Yeah, and like Michael Jackson, one of them. Like Princess Diana was probably one. Yeah, you know, I would say in today's world, probably like Messi, Ronaldo. These are really powerful stars. But you've got hyper uber 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 successful celebrity type people. Michael Jackson was that. I mean, he like if there was God in the room with Michael Jackson, people would flock to Michael Jackson. That's how powerful he was. All this money he made. Where did it go? There must have been, there must have been so much money lost because of these trials and people going after him. How much money do you think he was worth when he was at his peak, and how much money do you think he lost? So I've, I spoke to Michael about this because when his finances went on the screen in the two thousand five trial, it was shocking to me. I, I knew he was struggling for money the, the, for the last few years of his life because I was picking up hotel bills. I picked up a bill for him. Um, his credit cards were defaulting, basically. And I could tell he was in a bit of bother. But um, I asked Michael Jackson, well, first of all, to answer the first question, it's estimated he's, he's earned $8 billion at the time he was alive. Jesus. Right? $8 billion. He's, he's earned more than that, I believe, since he's died. And... He spent more than what he earned. So I asked Michael, his royalties alone for the Beatles catalogue was 80 million a year. So Michael, where's all your money gone? He said, I don't know, Matt. That'd be, that's an accountant's question. I don't know. But everyone just should take advantage of Mike, right? The, the accountants, the lawyers, the doctors. everyone, the doctors were the pain. Yeah, oh, geez, they're a nuisance. And trying to get them out of his life. We'd get rid of one and another doctor would come, you know? And yeah, it just constantly. But his lifestyle was expensive. When you're Michael Jackson to move around the world, it's tough. Hmm. It's tough. You know, it's, you, you've got a private jet around America. You've you got people who do want to shoot you and kill you. You know, you've got guns out all around the world. We don't have that in the UK. You felt safe here. It's expensive to be Michael Jackson. His security costs. Neverland was a million a month, he told me, to run. One of the first things I said to him, let's get rid of it. You're never, never, you're never at Neverland. I mean, the running joke amongst him and his staff. Michael Jackson is never at Neverland. He was never there. He'd, love, he'd, he'd have a suite in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel called the Michael Jackson Suite. He would just rather stay in it because he felt more comfortable. Neverland's in the middle of nowhere. So the money was just burnt out on spending. I, I remember once, um, I won't mention who it is because it wouldn't be fair, but a central figure of the Jackson family telling me that I wish, I wish the children were educated more in investing and managing money because they've all had their various, it's been well publicized, they've all had various bankruptcies and financial troubles one of the jacksons ended up stacking shelves at a supermarket one of them became a mechanic they've all struggled but they were they weren't taught how to invest and manage money they had it all coming at them and michael wasn't smart on that regard he was good at buying music and so on paul mccartney advised him to buy the beatles catalog as a joke and he did it for real but um yeah investing was not his why he could make money like you wouldn't believe but Investing wasn't his thing. And towards the end too, they kind of written him off and we were struggling to get record deals. And there was a, in London, you've got, well, I think it's, it's come back now. You had a play called The Thriller, Thriller Live. And it was all about Jackson 5 and going up to Michael Jackson, a proper show. And he tried to get that established for many years. No one wanted to know. And when, as soon as he died, it got commissioned and was running. And then you got the Las Vegas show, the one now was running. 
and he wanted a record label, and I would touch him. As soon as he died, all the music was played everywhere. It was just the love that he craved for when he was living. It only he got that kind of love he got now that he'd still be alive today. He used to say to me, the only motivation he has in life is his fans and to feel the love that he never got from his childhood from the fans. That's what keeps him going. And towards the end, it, it got very testing, absolutely very testing. So I didn't think he was going to die, not at all. I just thought he would stop the shows and cancel the shows. So on the Tuesday night, you, you mentioned he did die on a Thursday, you're right. On the Tuesday night, he called me from America. And um, obviously, we had everything set up here. We had, we had uh, he was doing 50 shows. My family and my kids were going to move in a house. We're doing it differently this time. We hired a house. And, well, Michael Jackson hired a house. Furnished it how he wanted it. He didn't want the children to be stuck in a hotel suite in central London, not being able to go out. So we hired this house. I think I, we, we spoke you about You know where stuff. it is, right? Yeah. You can say where it is now. It's, it's fine. It's public information. I, I would have thought. It is. When you type it in, is it, it okay. comes up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fine. So we, we so that was an agreement. So we had this house and me and Mark Lester, his best mate, went there and we spoke to Michael and we didn't have FaceTime back then. We had Skype though. We got it just how we wanted. And we were going to get to the O2 Arena by coming down the River Thames rather than being chased by fans and paparazzi all the way because he was very nervous Remember, he's gone through the trial. He doesn't know how the public is going to perceive him after that. He was nervous as hell. That's why we hired in that last guy, you, the guy you had on one of your episodes. Um, he's called Simon. Simon. Yeah. yeah. He was hired in because we needed, Michael was nervous and wanted extra men on the job. So we had 10 more men on the job to, to be there because we were in Japan, I believe. And it was chaotic. The fans were loving him to like unbelievable, back like it used to be. Cause, and the first public appearance after the trial was in. Earl's Court, we were going to the MTV Music Awards. And he wasn't meant to perform, he's just going to accept the most famous man in the world for Guinness Book of Records. And at the end of the night, we got a knock on the door from Beyonce, who's presented saying, oh, Michael, they think you're singing? Supposed to, and he wasn't supposed to sing. And he came out on the microphone, did his best, but the sound check wasn't done, the music wasn't done. And it was great. And the media slashed him for days after. But, um, but yeah, his lifestyle was, was mega expensive. And it, he died... I'm told he died $500 million in debt and he's worth billions now in death. And I think all this nonsense about the child molestation thing, you got to remember, right? This is, let me tell you what goes on. He was investigated by the FBI for 10 years. People following him and everything, full on, it came out. He had his phones wired and tapped. We all know about the phone tapping that went on, right? He, he, had, he got judged in the hardest courts in the land on 14 counts of child molestation. He used a Biggest star in the world. I couldn't tell you, Stephen, how much media was outside that courtroom. Helicopters flying. Everyone was there. Right? It was, and they wanted to put Michael Jackson. That district attorney at the time, Tom Sneddon, was the same guy who failed in 1993. To, to, he was hoping to make a name for himself. So they, so the guy, the family. Not only did they employ the same legal team, they also got the same um, district attorney, Tom Sneddon, on board. He, he wanted to try and make a name for himself, put Michael Jackson in jail. It was, it, Michael felt it was a racism thing. And, uh, I, and I've witnessed that with Michael and his family. I've been out with them, the Jackson brothers, and I did hear racist comments being shouted at them. So it's a real thing out in Los Angeles. It's quite shocking. So it's a racist situation. So it cost him a lot of money, that trial to the defense. It was 12 million, basically. That's what it cost him. 12 million and lots of brand deals and so forth. And, and um, he was reliant on those 50 shows to make his money back and, yeah, but things were very different. He wasn't in control of his life no more. He had to he had to go back on stage and 
he used to say to me, I, I never want to be doing moonwalking past 50 ever again. And he had to do 50 shows. Do you know what the motivation of 50 shows was, right? He only signed up to 10. That's true. But he had a thing in his contract, he told me, that if the demand exceeded it, he had to go to 50. So we, we met in the Lanesborough Hotel, me and Mark Lester. And um, Michael was nervous as hell. We were supposed to be at the O2 Arena where he was going to announce these concerts, 50 shows, no, 10 shows, to see how the public would react. And he got himself drunk, basically. So I turned up at the Lanesborough Hotel. AEG, his concert promoter, came up to me and said, listen, two of your famous mates are here, me and Mark Lester, Oliver Twist, and they're very drunk in the room next door. I said, well, who's the other famous mate? He said, you know the one, the mega famous, Michael Jackson. He's supposed to be on stage two, two hours ago. Go and sort it out. He real, spoke harsh to me. I was like, well, I opened the door. Michael's flat out drunk. He's drunk half a bottle of whiskey with Mark Lester. And, and Mark was trying to sober him up, pouring water down the neck. So we spent the next hour sobering him up. And he was so scared that the public were going to boo him. No one would buy these tickets for the 10 shows he's about to announce. We get on the coach. We go there. He announced the shows. They, they literally sold out within three minutes. And like, we get back to the Lanesborough Hotel. Michael was nervous. I said, Michael, are you okay? And he was crying. I said, no, I'm just terrified. I said, you do realize all those shows are sold out. He goes, are you serious? I said, yeah. They're all sold out. I said, and I said to AG, the contract, it's true, right? Yeah, they're sold out. We need to talk to you about more shows. And he started crying his eyes out. He couldn't believe that the public still loved him. They sold out within minutes. They were... And then they released the other 40 shows. They sold out every minute. And I'm told that he could have sold out 300 shows. There's that much demand and queue and people waiting Absolutely. to get tickets. Yeah. And he, that was going to be his biggest show of all time. But he thought he was going to get shot on stage. And this is the ironic thing, right? The last conversation I had with Michael Jackson in person, his favorite meal in England was fish and chips. And he would have to go and order it himself. So we'd go somewhere in Knightsbridge and he would go in with me and Mark Lester and he would like he likes to wear the wrapper with the paper and stuff. And they didn't think it was a room Michael Jackson, a lot of them was a lookalike. Sometimes they did, he would sign the paper for them and stuff. So we came back and we sat, it's our normal Michael was. We sat on the floor, me and Michael Jackson and Mark Lester, and we were eating fish and chips, curry sauce and stuff. And he turned to Mark. Now Mark is godfather to all of Michael Jackson's children. He turned to Mark and he said, I'm worried I'm gonna get shot on stage. Okay, I'm the bodyguard here. I said, Michael, I'm going to be there. I'm going to make sure you're not, you're not going to be shot on stage. Everyone loves you. It ain't going to happen. Now I'm worried I'm going to get killed. I'm going to get shot. And it's going to kill me. And I want to make sure, Mark, that you're going to look after my children because you're their godparents. And um, Michael's godparents are Mark's children. Mark's godparents are my children. It's all a bit, uh, Michael's to my oldest daughter and Yuri Geller to my eldest daughter. And he said, I want you guys to make sure if I get shot, you will promise me you'll take care of my kids and it'll be fine. So we were reassured him I think it's okay. The ironic thing, he was killed by a shot in the end, but it wasn't a gunshot. It was a shot, you know, uh, of sleeping medication, anesthetic. This was going to be the last part to like talking about the Michael Jackson kind of connection that you've got, friendship, etc. Um, I listened to some of the clips that you actually sent me and there was a part where Uri is talking about Michael Jackson about, he was challenging him a few times about taking sleeping tablets and all these other, yeah, I was other, there. other medication. Yeah. And Uri claims that he was one of the only people that really raised his voice and got angry to Michael Jackson saying, if you carry on, you're not going to be, be here. And Michael Jackson turned around to him and said, stay out of my public, uh, private life. 
Um, in short, in your own words, Matt, was Michael Jackson addicted to sleeping tablets? He, I, I never seen him actually take it, but I saw very different types of Michael where he would be slurry and out of it. We had a council events and, and so forth. So, and yes, there was doctors around. Yuri's telling the truth. I was there when Michael shout when he when Yuri Geller shouted at Michael. I felt ugh, awkward. And I, I tried to raise my voice once, so he shut me right down. Michael Jackson did like, you're just a karate instructor. And don't tell me what to do. And I say, well, what about Alvis Presley? And you say, yeah, I was married to Alvis Presley's daughter, Lisa Marie Presley. You remember that? I know all about Alvis Presley. So don't tell me, I'm not going to end up like Alvis Presley. And then Yuri would really give it some. He would sleep by Michael's hotel. <laughs> He'd sleep by his, his, um, his bed. bed. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And to make sure we could go to functions the next day and stuff. And no doctor would come in. And we'd get run on one doctor and another one would come out. Was he addicted? It started off with a Pepsi commercial where pyrotechnics went off and he caught his hair on fire. He had, he had three or four degree burns. And they gave him a drug called OxyContin, a painkiller. Uh, so this was like years ago. Highly uh, addictive. Highly addictive, yeah. And they wanted to make sure he's Michael Jackson. It's thriller. It was for a, a Pepsi commercial. That's what it was for. He burnt his scalp right back down to the bone and had to be reconstructed. And it never, his hair never grew back properly on it and so forth. And he, he hated it. So he started taking these painkillers that prescribed to him. And yeah, I mean, clearly it became an issue. Getting Michael to sleep was an issue. I bet. But do you know what? When you come off a stage of 80,000 people screaming at you, it's bad enough. If I'm talking to 1,000 entrepreneurs or 200, I find it hard to go to sleep. 80,000 people screaming at you for three and a half hours. Then expect to go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night. It's pretty tough, right? And uh, he struggled with that, especially how active he was on stage and going out in public and all the stress. Because so I'm 44 now. So back then, Michael was like, I used to look at him as an old man. It's funny, huh? But... Um, I used to look up to him, but I didn't appreciate the kind of stress being the billionaire Michael Jackson was world famous, the most famous man, how that would have been. I've been under media scrutiny myself, never to that level though. But for him to handle that must have been tough. So to reach out for something, it, it you know, I understand it. But yeah, Yuri said no to him. And raised his voice. He used to like barge into the hotel rooms. He couldn't care less than... And uh, actually, Joseph Jackson, his dad, did that too. In the end, Michael shut Yuri Geller out of his life. And I tried to repair that, but sadly he died because of Yuri telling Michael the truth. And Joseph Jackson, he, he, he talks very openly about. Joseph used to turn up right with a sawn-off shotgun at the hotels we were staying at. And it, he was scary, man. I'm like six foot four and I had muscles back then. He used to say, where's my son? Where's my son? And he had like this presence about him. And so Michael's... Uh, said, have you got a meeting book? So I don't need a meeting. And he had this sawn-off shotgun. He would walk up past us and just both burst in. And he would raise his voice to Michael too because he loves him. That was his boy, you know, and his son. And, but yeah, it, no one would tell Michael Jackson the truth. They wouldn't tell him the truth. Yes, men around him all the time. Um, your, the last part of this conversation uh, and this podcast is your appearance twice on Channel 5's uh, Rich House house yeah and essentially if i remember right it was taking a family who lived in the top 10 percent of the country as far as far as finances yeah, yeah, yeah. are concerned or wealth wealth uh um, divide divide yeah and then you were swapped with a family that lived in the bottom 10 percent yeah and the uh, surplus money that you guys had per week was wildly different um why did you go on to Rich House, Poor House? What was the motivation behind that? 
I was in South Africa with my wife. So my wife's a pop star in South Africa. She's number one son and an artist out there. We had to commitments for a record label out there. I had a phone call come from my agent saying, listen, there's this TV show. I hated the title. I didn't want to do it. Rich House, Poor House. Well, that's just humiliating. But I understand why through being with Michael and being involved in media, the headline is everything. The tagline is absolute. It gets your attention. Rich House, Poor House. So I understood that. It's a famous book. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, was I read cover to cover so yeah, many times. It, yeah. So I guess and they got the name from that. It's striking. I hated it. I said to a TV agent, I don't want to do that. That's not who I am. I'm not going to label somebody poor. But then they said, listen, man, you're going to go to live in a house. You've got children who've lived in mansions. You've been a millionaire for so long. They've not had a normal life. Wouldn't it be great for them to experience it? Living in, an, I just thought it was like a house swap. That's all I thought, Stephen. So I said to Monique, my wife, I said, um, what do you reckon? We, we, we go and live in this house. It's going to be small, but they, they won't tell you nothing where it's going to be or anything like that. And then they get to live in our house, which was like, ooh, drive my Bentley at the time and, and so forth. And we had to live off a budget. That's all I got told. So Monique's very humble. She comes from South Africa where she got gun, she got held at gunpoint at one point and robbed. Her family had nothing, living off toast and water for weeks on end. So she said, look, let's do it for the kids. Well, I want my kids to be grounded. So I've got six children in total, free from my rehearsal wife. We have a great relationship with my, my ex-wife. And um, she likes me calling that well, the ex-wife. And three with Monique. And um, we, we don't have to do this half-brother, half-sister thing. All six were together just last Saturday. They all get on, get on wonderfully. So not all my kids took part. Well, back then they weren't all born. But my oldest daughter, due to bullying at school, she being Matt Fidesz's daughter is not cool sometimes right she's she's had enough of all that so we made the decision me and my rehearsal wife for her not to take part in that particular documentary so lola savannah took part and um zach and hero hero is a baby so miela was born later so i took part in the documentary unbeknown to me my tv agent he kind of stitched me up i had no idea i would have to be doing the guy's job doing the cooking the cleaning man these guys are getting up at six in the morning and to 11 o'clock, like doing his night shift. I never done a proper day's work like that. And then living off 130, but I ran out of money by the Wednesday. I was like, oh, big shot, I'll be right. I'm the money manager, I'll be fine. And then because my wife had to emulate or copy what Kim, the guy, the girl that we swapped house with, the wife, she had a disability. So she just had to basically do nothing because she'd be sit on the sofa. And I was, I was doing everything, take, taking the kids to school and doing... I was knackered, absolutely. I was ringing my agent, hey, I didn't sign up for it. I thought it was like a house swap. Anyway, halfway through it, which is probably what we're going to get to, it got a bit controversial because it was a council house based in Southampton. And I wouldn't say it's a bad house. It's a four-bed council house. And it's in a in an area where, obviously, they knew about me. Word got around with camera crews, then the Michael Jackson thing got then like, F off to Neverland, people were shouting at me. You know, it was, it was tough. But the channel looked after us very well. They had security and staff there just in case. But um, halfway through, there was this NHS letter stuck to the fridge. Maybe Channel 5 put it there on purpose. I don't know. Or the production company. And my wife read it first. And Kim, the lady who we swapped houses with, the wife, her leg was due to be amputated due to um, a medical condition in her knee of extreme pain. She couldn't even have clothing on it. It's that painful. And I thought, whoa. Hang on a second. And it turns out Monique found out by meeting with Kim's friends as part of the show 
she could, was not mobile. She couldn't take, she'd never took the kids to school before. She couldn't leave the home. And all she really needed was a mobility scooter. And the house just needed a bit of tidying up, food in the fridge, garden sorted out. So I got on the phone. No, no, I, I complained to the, so the, the format back then was that you mustn't help the family out and you, not, you mustn't meet them, right? You can't, you don't have to go on the internet or nothing, search people. They, they, so they're in my house. So all the pictures of me and Michael Jackson and Britney Spears was all hidden in a, in a, in a wardrobe. Now I banned them, you probably noticed, I banned them for talking about Michael Jackson. I had a contract with Channel 5. I wanted this to be about my life for the MF brand, martial arts schools, not about Michael. I've had enough of that. My own success. And so they agreed to that. I couldn't control the media around it, but that was happened. It just so happened when the guy got to my house, he was a raging Michael Jackson fan. So when I got to his house, I saw all the albums were filling the bad, the dangerous, the right down off the wall. He got to my house, he's searching around. He found all the pictures of me, Michael, and so on. He's like, whoa, it's Matt Fidesz. And he saw the certificates on the wall and he, he sussed it out straight away. And he's bombarding the producers with questions like, um, I can't believe I'm in Michael Jackson's bodyguard's house. I can't believe I'm a big fan. So oh, you can't talk about that. And he couldn't understand why he couldn't talk about that until, until after. So basically, I said to Channel 5, I'm not going to leave this house as a multi-millionaire, not helping this family. Her leg's going to be flipping cut off in six months' time when all she needs is a mobility scooter and some financial help. So Matt, we'll throw you off the show. Do it. I know the value of me being thrown off the show and exposing this show that you won't let me help this poor family who are struggling when I can solve their problems, stop their leg being cut off. It's worth more to me and the public will be on my side then you worried about, because they're worried about being sued because there's a program years ago called Secret Secret Millionaire, which you basically reveal yourself at the end that you're a millionaire and you help the family out. The format was different. You don't have them from the family, you don't meet them. So I said, throw me out, do it. We'll go to the premiere in, no problem. I'll get my PR team on it. We'll have it all over the news. And, and in the end, Channel 5 called me and said, listen, you're a clever guy. You, you clearly know how to use the media. Um, buy the mobility scooter. Do whatever you want, Matt. You do well anyway but we won't film it. And I said, that's fine, deal done. So I carried on with the show. The mobility scooter got delivered. Now, the cameras were rolling, but the intention was never ever to film any of the stuff we did. And we went back to our home, they came back to their home. As they arrived, they wanted to get the anticipation of going back from a mansion to their council home. They're very happy to be home. And then they thought, they said, oh, there's something in the garden. And they just, the camera crew were messing around. They just kept the camera rolling. Little did they know what the reaction would be, which is Kim breaking down like, wow, crying. And she finds that I bought her a mobility scooter. She can now take the kids to school for the first time ever. And they didn't use all the other footage or the other things we'd done to help her, but they used that clip. It was only, what, 20 seconds, 10 seconds? And it went massive, massive, all over the media. It was the most viewed episode of Rich House, Poor House ever. And replayed over and over again. And because of that, they changed the show's format. Now when you do it, you help the family and you get to meet them at the end. So we went back one year later, I took him under my wing. He's doing very well. He's renovated his house and, and they're still using this mobility scooter. We, I messaged them the other day. I mean, they're great friends of ours. So yeah, um, for me, it was humbling experience for my kids. So that we're a terrace house. They were hearing families talking through the walls. I can't understand what's going on. They had to live off a budget. But you know what would come out of that is that they were... Um, they appreciated their daddy and all the material stuff they got access to, the, the Lamborghinis, the Ferraris, the Bentleys, don't mean nothing. The iPads, they were quite happy playing with plastic toys and sharing a packet of chips with each other. They just, I was banned from my phone for the week. They just wanted daddy and they had time with me and it woke me up. 
to realize because when I saw the show, I was like, whoa, my kid said that? that you've got my daddy back? The show's made me have our daddy back. I thought, like, wow. So I said to Monique, I won't work weekends anymore. It changed my life. And because of that, I don't know if you watched the second episode, but what, what happened, oh my God, I'll tell you, is um, I normally do events on Sundays, used to anyway, or work on Sundays. I'd be away from home or wouldn't be present at home. So this particular Sunday morning, nothing really sparked anything off. My boy Hero, I named him, right? That's for sure. Had a runny nose and was a bit, a bit grumpy. And normally I wouldn't be home. Because of Rich House, Poor House, I made this commitment to be at home at weekends with my family, right? So being a bodyguard and doing what I do with martial arts, I'm very heavy, and former lifeguard, very heavily trained in first aid. And um, I've had to do CPR before on, on people and stuff. And even my own mother once before, that's another thing. But so I knew what I was doing. Now, my wife's never done a first aid course on her life or anything. You call it fate, call it law of attraction, whatever you want. So because of Rich House Poor House, I stayed at home that day. Now, Monique was going shopping. She put the two boys in the back of the car. She looked back. Zach said, there's something wrong with Hero. I looked back and he was blue. And I could see her screaming. I was on the phone to ITV at the time. And she was screaming and shouting for me. She's not somebody to, to tell the kids off like that. I thought it was weird. So I said, I'll call you back. I went out to the car. She basically handed me a baby, which was blue, automatically not breathing. I checked for her heartbeat. It's very faint. First reaction you think is that he's choking. I put my hand down. I couldn't find nothing. So I just went in the zone. And then his heartbeat was going on me. Then it went on me completely. It was just me and him on the floor. I was doing CPR, mouth to mouth. She was on the phone screaming to the ambulance, get here quick. There was no ambulance available because England is screwed. Took us, they, got, they got a first response car with us in like 20 or 25 minutes. An ambulance turned up 45 minutes later. And um, he basically had a seizure in the back of the car. It lasted so long that his heart stopped. And I had to perform CPR on him and keep it going. And I was shouting at the time to send me anyone, send me a policeman, a fireman, anyone. They can't find an ambulance. What turned out happened, they pressed the wrong button. They, they pressed the button for a, like a broken leg and there was no ambulance. So we did a whole investigation into this system and uh, due to the fame of Rich House Poor House, the attention it brought on it, that the only person who responded to us is somebody who saw the call out. If anyone's available, we've got a child who's non-responsive, no heartbeat, dad giving a CPR, a lady was an ambulance paramedic, was putting her food in the microwave, thought, I'll go, I'll leave my food. She gave up her lunch break and um, she turned up and took over from me. I, I needed more oxygen after than him. It was hard going. If it weren't for Rich House Poor House, my son would be dead. I wouldn't have been home. That experiment program taught me the value of my kids. My wife will tell you, she wouldn't know what to do. The ambulance, when I got to her in time, he would no longer be here. would have been dead. So that show changed my life. I'm forever grateful for that show. Incredible. Matt, I really feel if we've done three, four, five, ten, yeah. twenty episodes, I think we can keep on going until, until my for, mad for, life. For, 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 forever. There's so many different segments. And the thing is, you're only 44 years young. Imagine another 44 years, how many other stories and how many other accolades and achievements you're going to go through so we'll make a deal in a few years time we'll do another one yeah um as a 44 year old successful man millionaire and has been well traveled well schooled what have you learned and what can you pass on to the future generation what is that tip that you can share with people so the top tips i can give everyone put your health first because having wealth without health is no point you don't be the richest person in the graveyard so at least an hour walk a day 
cut out alcohol, cut it down, make it more of a celebrational thing than a than a habit. Get your sleep good, eight hours of sleep per night. Put your health first, really important. Second thing is put your family first. Now, I, that's really important. And third thing is you need to take care of your family. I think the things that are going on in the world will show you that. You need to... What motivates me is building generational wealth and changing people's lives to teach people how to do it. I've got enough money to look after my great-great-grandchildren, but I want to make sure they're well taken care of. So I've got six kids. I can hopefully have a lot of great-grandchildren one day. And um, I want to make sure they're all taken care of financially. I don't believe anyone should be put on this planet who's struggling financially. I think it's a very unfair system. But your health's really important and your family's important. Now, Stephen, it's really hard to teach this stuff when I'm on stage on a webinar because this comes from the school of hard knocks. Until you've been through it yourself. So I lost my mum when, when I was 32. She was 56 from breast cancer. She was my rock. She was the one who said, you could do anything. There's no such word as can. I got a phone call from her. So I got six months to live. I thought, I'm big shot. You know, I've, I got loads of money. I, can, so I got the most famous mates in the world. I hired the best professor in Dublin on breast cancer. I spent £50,000 on experimental drug. When her coffin was being lowered into the ground that day, when I'm 32 and I couldn't save my own mother, the money in my bank account mean nothing, meant nothing at all. And I got this dark three years where I ended up on antidepressants because I had my divorce. Michael died. I was scrutinized by the media, everything I did because of that. And um, the uh, I had a close family member who kind of didn't feel did me right in business. I was People didn't really want to know me so much no more because when Michael Jackson died, I lost a lot of friends. And everything seemed to go wrong over this period of time of a year. And I, and, and I think the greatest, greatest lesson from entrepreneurs to people like me is there will be challenges in life, unfortunately. You can't say there's no weeds, there's no weeds, your life's going to be perfect. I drove my German partner for MF Germany back to the airport once, and I was 29. And he said to me, Matt, you've had all these years where everything you touch goes to gold. It won't always be like that, believe me. And he was so right. Mum diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. Michael dying. I mean, I'll go on and on. A betrayal from, from close people to me, being sued multiple times. Um, media just making up nonsense all the time. People have a perceived idea of what I really am. Drove me to the point where the doctors didn't know how to deal with me. So they were filling me with antidepressants and sleeping tablets. And at one point, a friend who was a doctor of me said, listen, I'll tell you the truth, Matt. If you carry on, Get, taking all these antidepressants and sleeping tablets because of what's going on in your life, you'll end up just like your mate Michael did. You ain't going to wake up, you know? I'd rather you have a glass of wine and take these sleeping tablets. We need to get... problem I had is no one knew what to deal with me because they, they sent me to bereavement counselling and I would turn up in a brand new Ferrari 360 with 140 grand and they were there to, to, to help me, counsel me of the loss of the most famous man in the world where everywhere I went, people want to talk about him. The music's played. His, one of his brothers had to be at counselling as well. And my mum was dying. I'm worth millions. They, they, didn't, they didn't know what to do with me. At one stage, the bereavement council started crying and I had to give her a hug because it's such a mad story. Like, it's something you had to learn to live with too. And I went from Matt Fidesz to martial arts, business guru, martial arts champion, awesome athlete to being on Michael Jackson's death, the bodyguard. And whatever's written about me now, whether I like it or not, Michael Jackson bodyguard will be with me for, forever. And I've learned to accept that. I used to try and keep it out of the media all the time. And I'm good friends with Alvarez Presley's bodyguard, Bill Wallace. And he said, Matt, 
He was bodyguard to Alvis Presley and, jo- and um, Bellucci, I don't know his first name is now, the Blues Brothers. And he said to me, um, he said, uh, he, he was a martial arts champion too, Bill Superfoot Wallace, they call him. He said, as soon as Alvis died, I've been labelled with Alvis Presley bodyguard ever since. You've got to learn to live with it, embrace it. It's, it's part of your life, 10 years of your life. But yeah, the school of hard knocks are your biggest lessons. The stuff I've just told you about, health, challenges, um, put your family first and um, and make money. Build yourself a generational wealth. Don't save, learn, learn how to earn money so you can take care of your kids. That For me, as a parent, that's my duty and be a, a role model and do it. Don't trust the government. Don't trust the school system. It's outdated. Who needs to know how to join dinosaurs, you know? I got a phone call, emergency appointment for my, my son, Zach, who's nine years old, parents evening. We've got a massive problem with Zach. Zach sat next to me. Imagine what this did to his confidence. Zach and his mum, Monique, teacher says to me, got massive problems with Zach's education. He's nine months behind. I was like, wow, could we do this without Zach being here? No, he needs to hear it. What's the problem? His handwriting is too big. Okay, fine. And the other thing, when he's doing the times table screen, he's too slow. It's six foot six. Is it 12? Is it this? So fine. So I can't write. I'm a multimillionaire, you know? I, I literally have to sign my name and I've got by. I can solve these problems for you, Mrs. Teacher. Let's give Zach a calculator, because even on our phones nowadays, they're everywhere. Let's give Zach a calculator. That solves the timetables issue. And let's give him a keyboard. He's nine. I mean, no one's really writing anything anymore anyway. You can speak in it. Types. Imagine what it's going to be like when he's 18. Give him a calculator. Give him a, to the keyboard. Say, oh, we can't, because that's not what's in the school curriculum. It's all outdated. You cannot no longer rely on Go to school, go to college, university. If you want to make it in life, you do the opposite to the masses and the opposite the government shows you and you will smash it. And you can do anything you want as long as you believe, dream it, believe it and achieve it. Love that. Here's my last question. When I first came, when I first had my first company, um, sales company, most of the people in there were, were men. There were some females, but it's mostly an alpha male environment. And I came up with this catchphrase, this slogan. It goes like this. Be happy... Never content. Yeah. If I were to ask Matt Fides, what does be happy, never content? What's your interpretation of that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in my blood, isn't it? People probably wonder, why the heck does he want to keep working all he does? And why did you do it? But I, have, I am happy, but never satisfied. Does that make any sense? So, I mean... Okay, I have to have reminders of my wife sometimes. So sometimes I live in an incredible home. I'm very grateful. But remember, I've only known this lifestyle since I'm an early adult. So I don't, I've got vague memories of the bed, bed sit era, but I don't want to think about it. It was painful that much to make me go I am. I live in an incredible home. I look out, I've got amazing views over the hills. And sometimes I'm looking out and I'm thinking, I want to be successful. And Monique's like, whoa, hang on a second. Are you 44? You're, you're, You've done so well. You, you, you're literally in top three percent, if not one percent, of the world in financial status. Plus, to build this mega brand that we've built, she has to remind me sometimes, and I, I have to work on myself really hard with this. That I've actually made it. I've reached my. So, success is a journey, not a destination. So, I reached it many years ago. So, I had challenged myself with that. So, I've got everything you can imagine, but I'm still not satisfied. So I, I get a thrill out of helping people do what I've done. I want to show them how to do it and do exactly. Because I find it easy. I, to me, it's like riding a bike. It's just simple. You just follow what I've done and you'll be there. It's the mindset that gets in the way. 
So yeah, I, I have I, my biggest challenge in life is mentally coming to the idea that I have made it. The goals I set for myself, I made it so early in my life, and I've smashed it. Uh, I want to be the next level, whatever that may be. But my my wife's very good at like bringing me down, and making me realize, come on, Matt, look at you, look at you got your own cinema at home. Well, you got everything. You're so young, you know. Like you said, like someone normally in their nineties, you expect to have this kind of success, but. I, I do appreciate that my life's not been normal. And some people watching and listening to this will say, well, you only got to where you got because of Michael Jackson. Yeah, okay. But I've got that drive to an action to, to, I've got this thing, energy that I take consistent action on everything I do. I implement new ideas before I even get home from events and events. I, you can do everything online now. I spent over a million pounds flying back and forth to America to study the best of the world of what I do and bring it back and make it better. Michael taught me that. Study the best people in the world get what they got and then make it even better. And I've earned what I've got and I could have ignored Michael. I could have not took his phone calls. I could have just got rid of him if I wanted to. I could not listen to Yuri Geller. Made me buy property at 18 years old. I hated him for it. I love him for it now. I hated him for it, man. He said, stop buying Ferraris. Buy five properties a month. And he pushed me that no one's building any more land. It's the greatest investment on earth. And I, I, I owe everything to that. But I believe in the law of attraction and whatever you focus on, you're going to get. I really do. Look, Matt, it's been really, really, it's been a, a great conversation. It's been great to finally connect yeah, to, uh, finally with you, with you in, in person. And no doubt there's going to be a few other conversations that you and I are going to have over the, over, over the course Anytime. of the next few months or, or years. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate God, it. God bless. Thank you, Thank mate. You Cheers. Much.